0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. This is episode 113 with Tom Rosenbauer on fishing, writing, and chocolate making. I start every episode with getting a, a background on my guests. So I would love to hear how how you got your start in fishing. And I'm sure a million people have heard it at this point, but um, I can never remember. So tell me how you got introduced to fly fishing for the first time.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I was one of those kids who just um, who just took to fishing. You know, some kids do and some kids don't. My dad took me bait fishing along the shores of Lake Ontario for catfish and white perch and things like that, worm fishing when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I really took to it. I I liked it. I like chasing frogs and turtles and snakes and all that stuff, too. Um, and when I got to be, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, can't remember when, I decided that I wanted to try something different. You know, I went to kind of ultralight spinning and my father went off and, and got into golf and I stuck with fishing. And so I thought fly fishing looked interesting. You know, I saw it in Field and Stream magazine. I saw it on TV on the American Sportsman. It looked, it looked interesting. So I just, you know, bought a rod at the local hardware store and um, bought a fly tying kit and, and just taught myself for many years. Um, while I was a kid, my father didn't. And I didn't know any other adults. I had one other friend. Who uh, was interested in it, and we kind of learned together. You know, we hacked our way through many difficult years. Um, But you know, what the cool thing is, when you're a teenager, you got lots of time, right? You got lots of time to to do this stuff and to practice it and to learn and so on. And there weren't, you know, there were no videos, there was no internet, there were a few books around, but you know, really, a lot of my stuff is self-taught up until up until I was probably up until I was in college or even after college when I first started working for Orvis I started to realize that there was this big world well at that time it wasn't a very big world but there were people that knew a shitload more than me I thought I was pretty hot and I realized that you know <laughs> there were people who knew a shitload more than I did about about fly fishing so um yeah that's, that's how I got started
1: So I'm, I'm I curious. was one of the Oh go go ahead
2: Sorry, I was one of those geeks who, you know, didn't didn't really do much with sports or social stuff in high school. I uh, went fly fishing, and nobody else that I knew, except one person, fly fished. So,
1: so it's like completely new to you, like a kind of a foreign thing when you first started. I assume,
2: yeah. And it's so cool these days that you see, you know. High school fly fishing clubs and college fly fishing clubs and class. I mean, George Daniel is a professor of fly fishing at Penn State. It's it's really cool seeing the young people now getting into it. I think it's so exciting.
1: And was that not a, not a thing? I know you said that you only had one friend who did it, but did it feel like there was anybody your age doing it? Or, or were you kind of the only one that was like in in your greater circle that was taking an interest to it?
2: There was nobody. You know, I went to the New York State College of Environmental Science and Forestry, uh, and you would think in in a school like that, there'd be somebody that fly fished. There was nobody. There was nobody in the whole whole college. It wasn't a big college, maybe 2,000 people. I had one um, teaching assistant who uh, was a fly fisher, and that was it, in the whole college. So, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing with young people in those days at all.
1: Well, I'm always curious uh when people l- describe a similar situation that they grew up they were they had an interest in it, maybe they had seen it on TV, but they didn't have mm-hmm. anyone to like actually go out and teach them and they're kind of self-taught. Yeah. What did you think fly fishing was? Because I feel like when I first saw fly fishing, I didn't understand that there was a leader on the end of the line and there was a fly on the end of that and I like I didn't understand what the casting was. I just saw the really thick line. And I remember thinking yeah. like how would any fish ever fall for that? You know, trying to equate it to spin fishing and thinking there was something right on the end of that thick fly line. Like, what it, did you have a good concept of what it was before you actually started, or did you Ooh, um, just say, I, "I'm sure this works. I'll give it a try"?
2: I don't remember. I think I, I think somehow I knew that you needed a leader because you know I was an ultralight spin okay. fisherman when I was young, so I knew that knew there had to be something between that thick line, and I think there was there were enough books available in those days where you you know you could you could at least get that much
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> not much more but you could at least get that
1: much yeah it's crazy how far we've come now with the ability of you know with youtube and everything um oh my I, God. I think books absolutely do still have a place but the ability to read about something and then go watch it done i feel like that's just such a I know it's overused, but a game changer, um, to be able to see the motion of it and everything instead of just reading it. I I think there's a place for both, but I can't imagine the difference in growing up without it and with it.
2: Yeah. Especially the casting, you know, I mean, I hacked away Katie at for years at casting and I, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, it was 10 years before I really got it, um, Because I never really saw anybody else casting, right? Except on the American sportsman, you know, Kurt Gowdy and Lee Wolf and people like Joe Brooks and people like that. Um, But as far as being able to practice it and see some, you know, see how it's done, i didn't didn't have that
1: well i feel like there's a big difference too between watching someone do it and having someone explain like how it's supposed to feel because i feel like that that feel is i feel like for everybody there's that one moment where you suddenly feel it load properly and and come forward and you're like that's Mm -hmm. it like i just felt it um it's really hard to describe but you know it when you feel it and if you're just watching Mm -hmm. someone cast you're like okay i see what they're doing they're going back and forth and then if you just go back and forth you're not going to get that it's probably not going to work very well if all you're doing is going back and forth and so i think there's a big difference too between watching that in a, a movie or a video that's just meant to show the person catching fish versus a, an actual tutorial an instructional video that's meant to to explain to you what you're supposed to be feeling so i can i can imagine being frustrated watching that and then going out and, and thinking you're repeating it but it's just not going right
2: yeah you're exactly right yeah and of course, when you when you're starting out with a, a rod that's not very good, I mean, it, the, the whole feedback thing is is the rod bending and building up that energy and delivering the line with a you know with a cheapo rod from the hardware store probably not going to feel much there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just kind of a stick.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And so, is this in uh, Vermont? Were you did you grow up in Vermont or um or New? I grew England? up in
2: upstate. I grew up in upstate New York. Okay, outside of uh, Rochester. And then moved to Vermont in um, 1976.
1: And is the fishing pretty similar in those places? Like, do you feel like how you grew up is similar to the type of fishing you do today?
2: Not really, because where I grew up, uh, when I, where I learned was a more or less a spring creek. A very oh, okay. technical spring creek where you were fishing 22s and 24s. Um, and when I came to Vermont, Vermont is uh, a lot less technical we have a lot of small stream fishing, you know, big attractor dries. I mean, the bat and kill can be pretty technical, but uh, most of the other streams, the, the little the little streams, it's um, yeah, it's a lot different.
1: Do you do you have a preference one over the other? Or are you kind of like any trout stream, any or any stream in general? Like, there's something to be found there that you you can appreciate.
2: Any place, <laughs> uh, you know, give me a dock with some bluegills on the end of it. Um, I'm a real generalist, and I just enjoy it. Wherever I am.
1: and So now in Vermont, I know you live kind of on a, I don't know if it's on a, on a trout stream or if a trout stream Flows through your land, but I'm really curious what that's like to have kind of your own home water in a way that's um, much more personal than somebody who just has a, a stream nearby. Like I, I'm assuming you get to yeah. see this stream go through the different seasons and the different you know stages and its in its life as a stream. Has that been you know a unique experience to have that? Yeah,
2: it's been fascinating. It has it has wild trout and it goes through cycles. Um, it, uh, my land is. Is the only land in the valley that I live in that's not in agriculture, and so a lot of the, a lot of the stream has been bermed and riprapped, and where I live, I, I let it go. I let you know, I let it, it. It suddenly, the velocity of the water just blasts through, so it's very unstable. And it changes every year. You know, I'll have beavers some year and they'll build a dam. It won't last, but they'll put some woody debris in the river. And, um, you know, I periodically have uh, invasions of mergansers that that really decimate the stream. And then I'll have a good year. And, so, and I look at the river. I walk my dogs on the river every day. So I look for fish. I look for changes in the pools and the structure, and the course of the. It's a small. It's a small stream. It, it but it floods pretty severely in the spring, so it it does blow out and move around. Um, so it's been fascinating, you know. It's been fascinating to watch it. You know, I wouldn't recommend it. it People go on Google Earth and find out where I live and go and fish there because it's not—it's not great, but it does have wild browns, rainbows, and brook trout. Um, it's not stocked, um, and it, you know it—it—it it, it fluctuates every year. Really fluctuates.
1: I—I I feel like that's almost. I'm sure in a bad year, it's it's not fun to have a bad year, but it's it's almost fun to have kind of this cycle where you don't know what you're gonna get. Like you, I'm sure every spring you come out and it's like, what's it gonna be like this year? You could it's like playing a slot machine. You might hit the jackpot, you might get the bankrupt. But that I think anticipation has got to be kind of fun and exciting versus going to the same place and it's you know you can only catch the same trout the same way so many times in the same pool before you're like. Okay, you know I've, yeah I know how to do it
2: yeah I get I get pretty depressed in years when there aren't many fish you know every spring I, I never see the fish early in the spring and I tell my wife, oh, there's no fish it's you know it's yeah. gonna be a shitty year and and then some years all of a sudden they appear from who knows where and some years they don't <laughs> and it's sometimes it's kind of depressing to go down there and, and not spook any fish you know when I walk the dogs or when I go down and fish so but it's always interesting.
1: Do you do any um, like work on it, like any restoration work or anything? I don't know if it requires anything, but do you try to get your hands dirty at all and try to improve the stream in any way to to facilitate more fish? I have tried.
2: Fish? Yeah, I have tried over the years. We had a, a, a project where the Forest Service and the state uh, came in and we did some some work. Um, but I've I've really learned that those things just don't last the river does what it wants to do. And we're kind of arrogant at thinking we can engineer uh, a trout stream because we can't. And so I've kind of, I've kind of given up, honestly, I've kind of let nature take its way. And um, I'm really happy to have some beavers uh, there because they do bring a lot of woody debris into the river and they change it. But yeah, I've, I've pretty much given up, and you know, it requires. It's expensive. It, re, you know, if you really want to do something, it requires heavy machinery, and that's expensive. And bringing big rocks in, and and root wads and stuff. And I just, I don't have the money. And and anything that I can do by myself with a chainsaw and a come along, it's not going to last. Yeah. It's not. It's not going to last.
1: So, do the beavers pull it up near you? Like, I, I don't know what activity they're they're doing there but um, yeah they pull the it up they
2: pull, they they pull it up during the summer and then um and then the first flood blows it out and so uh you know it gets some more woody debris in the river and it changes the course um and i th- i think they're they're beneficial but um you know you have to rely on what what they want to do yeah <laughs> but it's fun to watch them it, it's i enjoy watching them i had one uh, one year I had a, a pretty good beaver dam that held, held all summer and, and I would go down and fish in the evening. There were a lot of fish in there. And this beaver got used to me or beavers, I don't know how many, but they would actually swim up to me and kind of swim right up. I'd sit on the bank and they kind of swim up to me and look at me and they stopped slapping their tails they got used to me and it was kind of fun
1: did they ever uh slap their tails at you and and startle you i've gotten slapped oh. you know two or three times where i feel like i'm gonna have a <laughs> all heart <attack>. the time
2: <laughs> all the time but you know what once the trout got used to it, it didn't bother the trout a bit the really? trout would just keep rising the beaver would swim right through the rising trout and they would just didn't even miss a beat yeah wow it was I- interesting
1: I mean I guess I don't think of beavers as being like trout predators necessarily but I'm still surprised they're they not. The- they're vegetarian.
2: <laughs> they eat will mostly willow and aspen and but you know you would think a big mammal swimming yeah. through a bunch of trout but I guess they get used to it.
1: Well, uh-huh. I mean you learn something new every day. Maybe you got to get like yeah. a trout costume or, or, say, or a beaver costume or something so you can like, get a little closer to the fish. Yeah, I should. <laughs> um, I think, was, mm. it, was it the Orvis podcast maybe in the last year or two that um, – did you interview somebody about beaver ponds and their, as a beneficial aspect of trout I streams? I think
2: it was Jonathan Goldsmith. Um, I, I, I forgot his yeah. name. He wrote a book called Eager.
1: That was it, uh, yeah.
2: About beavers. yeah. And I learned a lot from him on the podcast. Um, you know, I learned. You know, we we tend to think that beavers get um, into a, a small trout stream and they back it up and they warm the water, right? Because it's more stagnant. Mm-hmm. But actually, what happens is the water goes up into the into the uh, the ground around the beaver dam and then flows through the ground and comes back out in the river. And of course the ground is always cooler than the air. So it actually cools the water. That was, that was a real, that was a real takeaway that I got from, you know, my own reading about beavers and then, um, doing a podcast with
1: him. Yeah, that was, I think, one of my favorite uh, episodes of yours just because, it, A, it was a little mm-hmm. bit different than the normal, the normal like, fly fishing talk. But um, yeah. it, it, I had the same reaction where I just, I had never thought of it that way. Uh, but it, it makes sense. I, I mean, I think about everywhere there are beaver ponds, I always find fish in them. You'd think if they were so detrimental that, you know, what, when you find beaver ponds, there just wouldn't be any fish around. But uh, I don't remember the last time I came up on a beaver pond that didn't have, you know, tons of little, little brook trout rising behind it, mm-hmm. lots of little fish sitting yeah. right below the dam. Like, it seems... You know, like it's benefiting them. So, um, that's yeah, really cool. I mean,
2: early on, early on, uh, they were making dens in the bank and the bank was caving in and it was eroding. And I actually went to the warden to get permission to shoot them. And he said, yeah, as long as you don't poison them or dynamite them, go ahead and get rid of them. <laughs> and now I've, I've totally gone the other way that I, I like seeing them. So it's been a been a learning experience with beavers.
1: Speaking of hunting, um, do you do a decent amount of upland bird hunting or any other kind of hunting? I do.
2: You know, I don't do as much. I used to do a lot of upland hunting, and I used to do a lot of duck hunting um, in my backyard. I did a lot of duck hunting. I don't do as much as I used to. My two labs are, would be totally useless in a duck blind. I've had really <laughs> good labs over the years, but these these two that I have right now would be. Absolute. So I do, I do some. I do a little, but um, not much.
1: Is there a reason that you've kind of tapered off or just you know, other things have yeah. come into your life that- You know the
2: the grouse populations have have uh gotten not so uh, they're not not as abundant as they used to be with development. Well, two reasons, development and then uh, a lot of our woods going back to big forest instead of second growth. Um so they're not as abundant. I do a, I spend a lot of time in the woods we forage and uh, for mushrooms and plants and things like that my, with my family. And I, I don't flush that many grouse anymore. So I'm not as, I'm not as, and I don't have a good dog. You know, it's all about dog work to me. And I don't, I used to have a setter and then I, I used to, I had a couple of good black labs that I hunted with, but I don't, I don't have the dogs anymore. And I didn't feel it was fair to the dogs I have now to train them for Duck hunting because I just don't do enough of it. Yeah. It's not really fair to him. So,
1: was it primarily a, uh, like a fly tying motivation to hunt or was it, do you just like hunting and? No, I enjoy,
2: I enjoy bird hunting. Um, I mean, I always save the feathers, but I, you know, it's, um, I, I love to eat duck and grouse. So it was a, you know, I used them all. I used it all. I ate the birds and saved the feathers and I'll still do it, but not, just not as much as I
1: used to the foraging, it sounds like maybe that's kind of where you've transitioned your, you know, go outside and and get food. Do you, do you like to forage while you fish? Is that a double activity or are they separate in your life?
2: Yeah, they're pretty separate. I mean, when I'm, when I'm fishing, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, maniacal about it. Um, I know, you know, if I see some good mushrooms, I'll pick them. But, um, the foraging hikes are generally with the family and they're, and and I don't take a rod with me then.
1: It's. I found the same thing. It's if you take a rod, suddenly any trip becomes a fishing trip. Yeah, you got to leave. Yeah, leave the I rod mean, even
2: taking <laughs> pictures, right? If you want to, <laughs> if you want to take pictures, you got to leave the rod home.
1: And do you do a decent amount of photography then? Like, is that
2: a <laughs> I do? Yeah, I, I do a, I do a fair amount. A lot of times, I'll go with a friend, and I won't I won't fish. I'll just take pictures.
1: Do you find that that gives you as much satisfaction as fishing? Um, it, once you leave the rod behind and acknowledge that you are on a photography mission, yeah. or do you find yourself being like, oh, I should have I should have brought the rod with me?
2: No, be- no, I, I I like bringing home uh, a bunch of good pictures. You know, they're they're usually for books that I'm working on. Um, I, I learned early on that if you're going to write fishing books, you better take your own pictures because you can't afford to uh, pay a photographer. So I learned very early on in my in my writing career that I needed to get my own pictures.
1: Speaking of your writing, I, I kind of want to hear about the writing part of your life because I feel like you've, you've written so many books. And I've talked to quite a few fly fishing writers and I feel like everyone has a different answer on, um, you know, whether they're a fisherman first or a writer first or if they, they mm-hmm. really feel like these... Parts occupy equal parts of their life. Do you have a, a thought on that? Like, are you a fisherman who writes, or have you really taken yeah. to the writing part?
2: No, I'm a fisherman who writes, and you know the the stuff that I do is almost entirely educational. I mean, occasionally I will do essays, like I did a I did some essays um, in a book with Andy Anderson about saltwater fly fishing, and I did a, a book with uh, Brian Grossenbacher uh, called Trout about Trout fishing, and I wrote essays there, and that was fun. You know, it was really, it was really fun to to kind of branch out. But my forte is really communication and and education.
1: That was going to be my next question because I like looking at all all the titles you've written. They all do seem to be focused on education, but I wasn't sure if that was because you really like. Like, do you do you really love the the educational aspect of fly fishing in general, like sharing that with people? Is it that you don't think you'd be a good, like more philosophical writer or you just really like sharing information with people?
2: (laughs) Well, there's a number of reasons. Um, One is that how-to books sell better. And, you know, I'm not going to write something because I want to write it. I want to write, I'm going to write something because people have asked me too many times about (laughs) this Issue. So um, I'm, you know, I'm very careful about writing things that I know people want to read, and also, I just, I just feel that an awful lot of these fly fishing essays fall flat. You know, it's you, you just unless you're Tom McWane, you can't capture the feeling of of being out. fly fishing, I just don't, and I'm not, I'm not a good enough writer to, to do that. And there, I think there's a lot of people also in the world that aren't a good enough writer to express it. Um, You know, it's, it's not easy to put in words and I don't want to read, I don't want to read Endless stories about how somebody got started in fly fishing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Sorry. I know, no, I know what you mean. I actually have never heard someone voice that, but the only two writers that I feel like I've really enjoyed more of the philosophical side are Tom McGuane and John Giroc. Like I don't, yeah, I, I encountered the occasional one-off article in a magazine that someone writes about at one specific experience they had that really moved them or something, but for the most part. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sometimes they're really good. You know, I'll read one too in one of the magazines and I'll say, wow, this is great. This is really, this really caught it. But Tom McGuane, John Gerrach, Ted Leeson and uh, Jim Babb are, are two others that I think are able to catch it. But there's an awful lot. It seemed like post pandemic or during the pandemic, there were a lot of people that hadn't been fly fishing for that long and wanted to, just wanted to express their feelings about <laughs> what it felt like. And I'm sorry, but a lot of it falls flat.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the um, the common theme I've noticed among the good the good essays or books is that they find a way to capture some small moment that isn't necessarily related to the fish itself, for the fishing itself, it's usually something yeah. else that they've they've been able to notice that this is a I don't know, profound makes it sound maybe more profound than it actually is, but just a you know a little moment that's something that only someone who is deep in the fly fishing world would notice and appreciate, I guess. Versus just yeah. I went out and I caught a bunch of fish and it was a good day and you know that yeah that's I don't know. There's only so many ways you can say that that are really capturing.
2: Yeah, I mean, if people can tell a good story, like two two sort of fly fishing books that come to mind. That I that I absolutely loved were the Feather Thief, which oh, I'm sure yeah, you probably yeah. read, and um, Monty Burke's uh, book about uh, Tarpon. I think it was
1: Lords the of, of the uh, Fly.
2: Lords of the Fly. Yeah, I mean those I couldn't put down, but they were telling you know they were telling a real story. You know they were telling a real story, and it was just it was riveting.
1: Yeah, I haven't read *Lords of the Fly*, but I got the impression that it was more of a like a history of like how the, how this whole culture came to be, which is yeah. a bit beyond but, just this one time. Oh I went my god, fishing you you have
2: to read that book. It is like it is like you can't put it down. <laughs> and Monty's a good friend. Monty's a good friend. I should I should I should uh, you know full disclosure. He's a good friend and a fishing buddy, but I he, you know I, he I absolutely love that
1: book. Okay, yeah, you're not the first person to say that, so I will have to pick it up. But I did read The Feather oh, Thief, and was it. equally enthralled with that one. That was, I mean, yeah. it was not even really about fishing at all, but... No, just, no, it wasn't. I have wasn't. no idea that that whole side culture, underground world existed.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you have any other favorite books, like any that come to mind as just like a, kind of a classic in the fly fishing world?
2: Well, The Longest Silence, Tom McWayne's book, um,
1: mm-hmm. is
2: the best, I think, that's ever ever been done about about fly fishing you know i i mean i i have a my library here i have a lot of fly tying books you know because fly tying you're all you can always learn something new right mm-hmm. so i have i have you know shelves and shelves of, of fly tying books and i and i also have a lot of books on hydrology and and right. uh, you know trout stream ecology like i i guess i'm just more of a kind of a a linear you know non-fiction type aficionado of fishing books
1: well you want to learn something you're gonna come out with yeah with i want a to learn something to... yeah i want to
2: learn something is
1: is that what gets you excited about fly fishing these days or and, and maybe this isn't it but a picture when you've been fishing for so long that of course it's still fun to get a fish in the net but like yeah. w- what is really drawing you to <laughs> go fishing these days is it like the the desire to learn that one incremental thing each time you go out and be surprised or like what, what is it that gets you learning
2: something new? I mean, it's, that's the beauty of fly fishing is that you'll never learn a quarter of it. And I love going out with somebody on a new stream or for a different fish that I haven't caught or, or I've caught very few of, um, and learning from them, you know, I'm still learning, uh, to trout spay um still really learning to euro nymph i don't think i like it much but i'm still but i still do it and it's and it is interesting and and you know there, i mean stuff is cool stuff is happening all the time um it just keeps just keeps growing and uh, you know i just love learning and I'll, i'll keep learning till i stop fishing
1: What like new things are you, you, you mentioned um, your nymphing, but what other yep. things are you doing? I know you do a lot of carp fishing. Is that still new to you or is that, do you feel like you're pretty solid on carp fishing at this point?
2: Well, I think I'm pretty solid, but I've been skunked a lot of times. Okay. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Lake Champlain is a big lake in, in Northern Vermont and it has huge carp and we still haven't figured them out. I have a friend who actually guides on Lake Champlain and we go up and we try to figure them out and we still haven't crack the code um you know it's i don't know if we'll ever figure it out um we see them we cast to them we usually don't hook them so that gets to me and so i just keep going back you know i just keep going back to try to figure it out
1: now does lake champlain have like like flats that you can fish from a boat
2: yeah, there's some flats. I mean, it's a big lake and it's it's varied. There's some flats. Uh, there's weed beds. There's shallow shallow bays. But I I suspect, this is why I suspect a lot of them feed in deep water and they come in shallow in the afternoon to just kind of digest and laze around. Um, that's, that's my theory.
1: Is Lake Champlain the one that has like a ton of species?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything from landlocked Atlantic salmon to... Um, to you know, uh, drum freshwater drum to uh, lot you know lots of smallmouth bass and every panfish you can imagine and catfish. It's it's a two story lake. In other words, it's deep enough to support cold water species, but it also um, has shallows that support warm water species. So and it's a big lake. So um, yeah, there's always something. We I went out with my buddy to try to catch as many species as we could in one day one uh, this year. It was a lousy day. It wasn't really very good. It rained and thundered and everything, but we caught 12 species of fish on a fly.
1: Holy cow. And I assume the techniques must have been all over the place.
2: Yeah, all over the place. All over the place. Bluegill, perch, uh, catfish, gar, bowfin, all kinds of stuff.
1: What do you use to catch uh, things like gar and Bofin? Just big streamers, or
2: uh, gar? Gar? We typically use a, a yarn fly. Um, it's made from nylon rope, marine rope, and you just tie it to a. You actually tie it to a shank, um, and you, you you put a little hook in there because in Vermont you, legally you have to have a hook in your fly.
1: Really, or or why? <laughs> like or
2: it's illegal. <laughs> That's. I mean so the warden. Weird. The wardens have have caught this friend of mine and said, "You know, you really need to put a hook on here." And he said, "Yeah, I know." Um, so we put a little hook on it. But their their teeth get caught in the yarn. And uh, but they're fun. They're they're you know it's all sight fishing. And then what was the other
1: one you asked? Bofin.
2: Oh, Bofin. <laughs> they're in really shallow water in in. Very, very shallow water in pockets in the weeds, and you kind of just dap a weighted fly in front of them until you piss them off and they grab. Oh,
1: fun! <laughs> <laughs> I've only caught it's, both uh, on bait, so I, I don't know what the, uh-huh. the fly techniques are, but it definitely looks yeah, you
2: got it's sight fishing though, so it's cool, yeah, but you know it's mo- mostly it's really dapping, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just whacking at them until they get get upset,
2: yeah, you sometimes tickle them right on the nose with the fly and then they get pissed <laughs> off and eat it. <laughs>
1: Man, that's, that's one thing I really miss about um out east fishing. So I grew up in Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. it was kind of the same thing. The river I grew up on had I, – I must have caught at least 10 species out of there over the the time I lived there. And being mm-hmm. out west now, I'm in Colorado, and I love it out here because I love the mountain mm-hmm. fishing. I love the, the backcountry streams and everything. But we just don't yep. have the same diversity of, of species out here. Like normally yeah. when you show up yeah. somewhere, you kind of have a rough idea of what you're going to catch. Like you might have – one to three things that you could pull out, and I really just mm-hmm. love the surprise um, of who yeah. knows what is on the end of my line. It could be, it could be anything.
2: Yeah, and that's why where where saltwater fishing is so exciting because you never know what you're going to tangle with there.
1: Absolutely, uh, you've done a decent number of trips. I know around the world, but um, I'm curious to hear what What your experience out west has been compared to New England because i I only really have experienced fly fishing out west. I, I spin fished when I uh-huh. lived back east, and I feel like the culture out here is maybe a little bit different than in New England because you guys have such a, a rich history. Uh, you know what are you, what are your thoughts on out west versus out east? do you do you like one more than the other? Do you notice any particular differences besides just the the species present sometimes?
2: No, I like both of them. I try I, I, spend, I try to spend you know a couple trips a summer in the west and i typically fish idaho because it's i think it's less crowded than Mon- montana's gotten really it's i mean it's not bad I, I still fish the madison in the fall and the spring and it's not so bad but you know summertime wherever you can put a drift boat it gets pretty crowded but the, the fishing is is really so much better in the west um the the rivers are richer they're they're bigger they're richer they have most of the time, better hatches. I mean, we have some I mean, pretty good hatches in, in the East, on, in the bat and the baton kill at certain times, and the Delaware and the beaver kill have great hatches. But, you know, it's just, there's a lot more in the West. There's just a lot more opportunities.
1: What about the culture itself, just having such a, a longer history in the Northeast? Is that, is that something that you connect to a lot and can kind of dive into? I feel like out west is it's kind of new. You know, it's the fishing is good, but I don't feel like there's that deep history out here. I
2: guess it's not as deep, but there's a there's a pretty good there's a pretty good history in in the west, you know, people like Dan Bailey and Renee Harrop. I mean, there's a, it, it's more, yeah, it's more recent. You know, it's within our within my lifetime, but there there's still a pretty rich history in the west. I don't think it's been celebrated enough.
1: Okay, I mean that's nice perspective to hear because I feel like that's another thing I'm kind of jealous of is I just feel like New England has you know these styles of flies and stuff that that come from that part of the country and I I feel like most of the names I hear are from that part of the country.
2: I don't know there's uh, I use a lot of Western flies in the in the East now chubby Chernobyls and oh, yeah? know, all the foam flies I use them on our small streams. You know, I, I, I'm not so sure I'd want to live in the West, even though trout fishing is better because it's too far from the salt. I, mean, I do, I do love my striper fishing and uh, false albacore and bonita in the fall. So, you know, it's pretty far from the salt.
1: So is most of the saltwater fishing you do just off the East Coast, like near you versus the, the more exotic destinations?
2: Well, I love bonefish. I love bonefish and tarpon. Um, and I I do that as much as I can, not as much as I'd like. Stripers are are closer, mm-hmm. and I can drive to it. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to mm-hmm. get on a plane. Um, but um, you know, I do love tropical fishing as well. I don't like permit.
1: Why is that? Just the frustration. Yeah, the frustration.
2: <laughs> I like to catch fish, Katie. You know, I, I I like to hook fish once in a while, at least a couple in a day of fishing. Yeah. And, Permit fishing is—I don't know. I mean, I'll throw to him, but I, I wouldn't go on a specifically permit fishing trip.
1: That's—that's that's funny. You mentioned that we just got back from our first saltwater trip, actually, and I think more than half of the people that were at the lodge with us were there specifically uh-huh. to catch a permit, and they didn't want uh-huh. to really go for anything else. They were permit or bust. Yeah. And, you know, some of them got one, some of them didn't. And yeah. I don't know. I it was our first trip, so naturally we wanted to catch anything. Yeah. But I just I. I wondered if I will ever be the person that goes on a trip with the sole purpose of catching a permit and nothing else. And I just can't imagine not being enticed by all the bonefish I'm looking at. You know, as I walk around the flats. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And bonefish are, you know, bonefish are really interesting. And if you do things right, you can catch them. If you do thing, you do every, you can do everything right and not catch a permit.
1: Yeah, yeah. They seemed. I mean, they they seemed to live up to the the difficulty hype while we were there. I mean, yeah. there are people that spent yeah. the whole week chasing them and saw. A handful and didn't hook one. I hooked one, and it got off. But I, w- I considered that a win, That's and I was pretty pretty, cool. pretty yeah thrilled with that <laughs> result. Um, but the is you know were the then, fun, most fun.
2: then again I chase carp and carp can be as oh. difficult as permit. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know. I'm probably not being fair about it. But
1: have you ever chased carp with the um, is it the mulberry fly that people use on the surface mm-hmm. for them? I've never yeah, done that. I have is it fun?
2: Oh, it's amazing. You know it's a short window because the mulberries are only dropping for a short period of time uh, but yeah to catch a 20 pound carp on a uh, floating flies is pretty cool
1: what do you like so much about carp because I feel like I hear you talk about them a lot and you seem to really light yeah. up when you talk about them and, and I don't know if it's if it's just the challenge or that it's you know newer to you than trout like what what specifically about carp really draws you in
2: well it's the challenge for sure and it's also the fact that it's one of the few freshwater fish it's gonna can get way into your backing. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're strong and they go. Um they I mean, they're ugly, but um there's are still and they're interesting. Every place that you find carp, they behave differently. And it's that education thing, you know, it's that it's that figuring out the puzzle. You figure them out in one body of water and you go to another one and the same things don't work.
1: They seem like a fish that wouldn't be difficult to catch, but then they 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 actually seem way smarter cool. than all the other fish I go after. <laughs>
2: well, they're not smarter. I think they're like a wild turkey. They're cautious. They're, yeah. You know, they're uh, they're not very bright. They're just cautious and uh, they feed in weird ways.
1: Yeah, they seem disinterested. I guess in in Often, like what yeah. you know, whatever I'm doing. I feel like trout. They're either scared of me or they're interested in what I'm throwing but in they're, yeah. they're kind of aware of me in some way and i feel like i when i walk up and see carp in the water if i don't spook them they just kind of seem like they are they're living in their own world and you know whatever i'm yeah. doing to them they may or may not even notice that i'm there
2: they do a lot of cruising cuz they kind of tend to go in packs and you know a cruising carp is you know not a high percentage you got to find them when they're a- actively feeding when they're mudding on the bottom or tailing or um you know you, you got to find that and so a, lo- a lot of it's just moving around and finding places where they're going to feed
1: yeah that's i've struggled with that i haven't um done a ton of carp fishing but when i have i tend to come across the cruising fish and i think i just haven't figured yeah. them out like when they're frustrating
2: when they they're you know you occasionally you can get a cruising fish to eat uh, but fast cruising fish never if they're moving slowly, maybe, you know, I kind of equate them to tarpon. You know, when tarpon are mainly nocturnal feeders, and we're when we're um, casting to tarpon in clear water on the flats, we're just trying to convince them that there's a little snack that's that's close by. Um, they they're you know they're not really busting bait or actively feeding. Um, you're trying to just get them to. Almost a reaction strike. I think the same thing is true with cruising carp. They're not actively feeding, but, you know, crayfish darts ahead of them. They might eat it.
1: It's like if someone slides a plate of French fries in front of you. It's going to be hard not to reach forward and grab one, even if you weren't going to go out of your way to go find French fries.
2: (laughs) But you got to learn exactly where to put that plate of French fries and how to cook them and, uh, you know, how much salt to put on them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> do uh, do carp follow any sort of kind of like daily cycle pattern? Like you know, I think of trout, especially on the hot days, you know, morning, yeah. evening. But do carp follow a similar kind of predictable feeding pattern?
2: Yeah, carp carp seem to, and it depends on depends on where you are. It depends on the water temperature. But yeah, they they seem to you know, a lot of places they're in deep water and then they come in um, in the middle of the day. But yeah, they will. They they definitely will have um, daily patterns
1: last thing I wanted to cover that's, uh, before I, I want to finish up kind of talking about your podcast and, you know, sending people mm-hmm. your, your way, but, um, I wanted to know about your chocolate making. I know that you make <laughs> chocolate and yeah. every time I've heard you mention it, it's in passing. And I'm really, really intrigued by what goes into chocolate making. Cause I've never met anyone who makes their own chocolate. So just <laughs> tell me, tell me about it.
2: <laughs> well, it start it started, my son is allergic to, uh, Nuts, mainly peanuts, but we we stay away from tree nuts, so we have no nuts in our house. And it started years ago at Halloween when they'd come home and couldn't eat any of the chocolate because you know a lot of it's cross-contaminated and it's made on on machinery that has peanuts. So I said, well, maybe I can make chocolate, and I, oh, you know, I hacked away at so many so many weird ways of trying to make real chocolate and it wasn't very good. And then I uh, came across this uh website of a guy named John Nancy who who is really the the person who started the whole bean to bar the whole artisan chocolate industry. Prior to John uh you'd have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of machinery to make real, you know, smooth, tasty chocolate. And he he has a website and I went on there and I realized I'd have to buy a you know, bunch of these. He hacked it so you could use kitchen appliances to make real, real chocolate, really good chocolate. And, you know, he's the he's the one who, who as, as much as they won't admit it, like people like Mass Brothers and a lot of the artisan chocolate makers are using, starting with the methods that he developed in his kitchen and he has a website and he sells the machinery and he sells the beans and you know you have to get really good um organic uh, free trade um fair trade beans or you should anyways and um i started doing it and i just you know i mean it's a process it's like fly tying or anything else took me a while to figure it out but now you know, I make chocolate almost every week and I got a batch going right now in the basement. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, people love chocolate, right? So I, most, I give most of it away uh, because people are so, you know, they're so appreciative when you give them a bar of chocolate. And my chocolate's damn good.
1: Yeah, you've really perfected it at this point.
2: <laughs> I've perfected it. Yeah, I've perfected it. I've learned a lot from John and I've learned a lot on my own. Um and what I like is the different beans. Every bean, every bean from Belize or Colombia or Peru um, has a different flavor. It's like a wine or a beer. And so, uh, you know, I cycle through various um, beans, and it's all different.
1: I know that it's going to be way too complicated, obviously, because it took you a long time to even figure out how to make it properly. To describe, you know, everything that goes into making chocolate, but. It, yep. At a very high level, like what are the steps in making chocolate? It goes oh, from a bean yeah. to how does it become a. Chocolate well, you bar? get you
2: get these raw beans that come from uh, you know places like uh, Chocolate Alchemy, which is John's website, or uh, another place I use is um, Uncommon Cacao. I think it's the name of it. Anyway, <laughs> it's in it's in your it's in Colorado. Okay. Um, and you, you get really good, really good high quality beans. It's not the same beans that Hershey uses or, you know, the commercial makers, they get their stuff from, uh, Ivory Coast and Ghana and it's, it's commodity cocoa. It's pretty, it's pretty bland and you, you get it. And the beans have been already, uh, fermented on site. So wherever oh. they're grown, they're fermented. Chocolate has to be fermented. And so you get these dried fermented beans. And first of all, you roast them in a coffee. Ro- it's, I use a coffee roaster, uh, Baymore. Uh, Baymore B- is the, the coffee roaster that that works for cocoa. And then they sit overnight after I roast them. And I roast by smell. I have I I I hover over the coffee roaster, and when the smell is just right, I turn it off and cool the beans. Uh, then you have to crack them. And I crack them in a Champion juicer, which is a machine that's no longer made. I don't know what's going to happen when my Champion juicer breaks down. That's a big, <laughs> kind of big, heavy-duty juicer, and that cracks the cracks the beans and separates the hull from the nibs, the stuff. And then I have to winnow the husk away, and I do that in a, a machine that John Nancy developed, It looks like this Rue Goldberg thing that hooks up to a. Hooks up to a, a shop vac <laughs>
1: wow. that, that
2: takes all the husk away from the nibs. And then I grind them um, in a what, what is called a melanger, but it's actually a device that um, East Indian uh, people use to make um, I don't know, it's, they, they make something with rice or something that it's a wet grinder, basically. It's okay. got granite wheels. And I run that with sugar for 24 to 48 hours, and that smooths everything out. keeps just keeps running and running and running. And then I take it out and temper it and put it in molds. So it's about a four-day process.
1: Okay. And this, does it come out as dark chocolate then, or is it milk chocolate? Or you yeah, you can, well, you
2: can make whatever you want. I don't okay. make milk chocolate much. I make, Most of mine is 70%, 72% okay. cocoa. Um and, uh, yeah, because I, I try to make it to, very consistent so that I can taste the difference in the beans.
1: Now do you still tweak your recipe at all, or is it just right as it is, and you don't have to tweak anything anymore, but you could use it in different ways after it's done? Yeah,
2: I tweak the roasting depending okay. on the bean, but uh, after that, it's pretty straightforward.
1: It sounds like you've got um, bottomless Christmas gifts to give people forever. Like, I, I'm sure yeah, no one turns yeah. down getting a homemade chocolate bar for a gift
2: Yeah. You know, at the, uh, at the, what used to be IFTD, the trade show, I used to come with, I don't know, you know, a lot of chocolate and I'd give it to all my buddies. And um, when I host trips, like to Idaho or Cuba or Bahamas or whatever, um, everybody gets a, a bar of chocolate. I have to bring chocolate with me. So.
1: That's very cool. I've never met someone who makes it before. And uh, It's really it's
2: really easy. I mean, it, it's it's a process, but it's not. You can do it in your kitchen. You can definitely do it in your kitchen.
1: I feel like that's much like many kitchen processes where the first time you do it, it feels daunting. But once you've done it yeah. 10 times, you're like, I could do this with my eyes closed, even if it feels yeah. daunting to somebody else. Like you just got to have do the same thing over and over yeah, again. Yeah, no, and it's fun.
2: It's very satisfying.
1: Awesome. Well, um, the last thing I wanted to, to ask about is your podcast, which I assume most people who are listening to this show have heard of the Orvis podcast before. Um, but for anyone <laughs> who hasn't, uh, tell, tell people what the, the format of the show is. Cause it's kind of a bit different than most of the other, um, fly fishing podcasts with your question and answer. And then, um, the meat of the, the show, which I find really interesting that you have those two segments like that.
2: Yeah. It's evolved over the years. And uh, originally it was just me talking, you know, and that was pretty boring, but, um, what I do is I, I take questions. I have an email box that I that I check, and people can either send a, a, a voicemail, uh, attach a voice file, or they can just ask a question. And I spend about thirty to forty minutes at the beginning answering those questions. People love that part. Well, some people love it, some people don't. Um, a lot of people really like it, um, and it, what they do is they try to answer the question before I answer it, just you know, to see. See how close they can get to my answer, <laughs> um, and then I do an interview. So I, I try to you know I, I try to get um, I do a lot of conservation podcasts. I do a lot of them with biologists uh, when I can find a really interesting one or resource managers or hydrologists, and then I do you know the standard how to with a with an expert. Um, one of the one of the things that I that I've learned is that I never have a guest on the podcast where I know more than they do about a particular subject because it keeps me curious and keeps me asking the right questions. And there's lots of people that know a lot more than I do about lots of things. So it's an endless, (laughs) it's an endless uh, vault of uh, people. And, you know, I'll meet somebody somewhere, I'll meet a guide or something. I'll say, ah, this person would be a great podcast interview."
1: Yeah, I found that podcasting, at least the interview style ones like this, are kind of a selfish game a lot of the time because it's like, well, I can just, you know, I mean, I'm talking to you right now, which I never thought I would do, but like you reach out to somebody and people are generally willing to, to talk and then you get to pick their they brain are. about whatever you want.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, lear- I learned so much from those podcasts, um, you know, talking to people. I'm always taking notes about this fly, I got to tie, I got to try this leader. So uh, I learned a ton. My two my my two uh, favorites were um, the one I did with Tom McGuane, who I've been trying to get for years on a podcast, and then with John McPhee, who was, you know, two of my really real literary heroes. So th- those were really thrilling to do.
1: Uh, tell me about the fly box a little bit more. Do you ever get questions that you genuinely don't know the answer to, and Uh, In that case, do you, would you just say, I don't know, or do you go and do your own research to provide an answer for somebody?
2: My rule is that if if I have to look it up on the internet to answer their question, I'm not going to answer it because they can look it up on the internet. They've got a computer in front of them. Um, and I, I don't do like, I'm going to Idaho in July. Where should I go fishing? I don't do that. I don't do that because they could call a fly shop. Sure. Um, and then, if I don't know the answer, and I can find the answer from one of my coworkers, you know, a lot. Of, sometimes people ask technical questions about rods or lines or something like that. I do have a pretty good network that I can reach out to and say, "Hey, do you, you know, do you know the answer to this?" And you know, sometimes if I if I don't know the answer and I can't find anybody to help me, I will say, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer. Uh, maybe nobody knows the answer, right?
1: And I have, heard, I think I've heard you um, say I don't know before. And I've the mm-hmm. nice thing is enough people listen, that I've heard listeners then write in, and they might have the answer, yeah. or at least a yeah, a, yes, an alternative or something that they can offer. They
2: do, cool. yeah. Sometimes they'll they'll uh, call in or write in with a tip. Uh, oh, you know, you forgot to mention this on your answer. Oh, yeah, I should mention that. And so, yeah, so we do that, but it, it makes it their podcast. You know, it it really gives them. Um, makes them feel like it's it's really their podcast because they're they're contributing to it.
1: And is there one type of question that you feel like you get more than anything else? Like is there a common thread where you're just like, oh my God, this gets asked every week or <laughs> anything yeah. like that?
2: I hooked three rainbow trout in a row and I lost all of them. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> Nothing
1: Sometimes happens. they're
2: gonna get unbuttoned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that a ton.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I I don't listen to the fly box too much anymore. I used to listen to it a lot. Now I often <laughs> you get you give the little button that I can skip right to the interview, so I'll sometimes yeah, do yeah. that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, I felt like there were I could I could sense your frustration sometimes. In you know, like <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just <laughs> I've answered this the last four episodes, and I'm not going to do it again. And so I, I I've written in once or twice to you, but I've always tried to make a point not to write in a question that might make you rip your hair out. <laughs>
2: Have I ever answered your question?
1: Yeah, I think you've answered. I think I've written in twice and you've answered both. I don't remember oh, what I asked, great. but. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were good ones. Yeah, they was. Must- I must have gotten the answer I needed because I don't even recall anymore. So it must not be a, a problem <laughs> I struggle with anymore. <laughs> great. Well, we can get wrapped up. I know you're a couple hours ahead and uh, you've got company over. So um, just if you want to direct people, what's what's the name of the podcast? It's Orvis. Which I'm sure we'll bring it up. Yes, yeah, the Orvis
2: it's the Orvis fly fishing podcast. Okay, it's simple pretty, enough. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward, and it you know it's on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or you know all the other all the other um, podcast aggregators.
1: Okay, and I assume that people can find your books um, where most books are found. Is there any place that you direct them to in particular to find your books that would be you know better than Amazon, or is Amazon the place to go?
2: I prefer they go to their local bookstore, okay. but they may not have it. So okay. you know. Sometimes you got to go to Amazon.
1: Sure. And then, um, I know you're on Instagram. Is it Rosenbauer T on Instagram?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't post much. I kind of, I, I kind of don't spend much time on social media. I mean, I, I, I look at Instagram a lot and I answer, I answer people, but I, I just, I found that I was spending too much time staring at my phone and there's more, more things I want to do in life. Like, go fishing and make chocolate and hang out with my family than stare at my phone to find out how many people like the post <laughs> those sound like good alternatives for sure <laughs> yeah
1: well tom uh, i really appreciate you taking the time i know um i just had a contact reach out to you and you've been very generous to take a chance on a podcast a, a much smaller podcast than yours so i really appreciate you doing this and wish you the best going forward
2: well, thank you, Katie. You asked, you asked great questions and it's, it's been really fun.
1: Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me and you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, But otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.